What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest is a true trader at heart. As the head of product strategy at TradeStation Crypto, James Putra is using that knowledge to build the complex, complex infrastructure needed to allow traders to do what they do best, make money. Some would argue that what traders do best actually is lose money, but we can discuss that later. Uh, <laughs> in addition to trading, James has been an investor, builder, and vocal advocate for mass crypto adoption. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, his secrets to be a successful trader and to discussing what we can expect from the crypto market and from TradeStation in 2021. James Putra, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Scott, for having us. It's, it's funny you mentioned, uh, I think we, we remember our losses the most. It's like the times you get knocked out in the fight. I still remember like the Swiss Frank getting nailed. I killed it on the way up when they did the peg and got crushed on the way down when they took the peg off. <laughs> I swear to God, every time I talked to any Forex trader, they were in that trade one way or another, right? Yeah, it was funny. I think it's the only time I've ever had to come into work with a check to pay my employer was uh, on the unpegging of the Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can get into that in a minute. But before we get into the rest of the questions, you are once again listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, which uh, comes out twice a week, where I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. The show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. And if you like the podcast, follow me on Twitter. Check out my website, join my newsletter. You can do both of those things at thewolfofallstreets.io. Uh, let's jump into what you were just talking about and something I mentioned. Traders, obviously, we know, we see the statistics, 95% of traders lose. It's hard to beat the market. If you had simply invested in an index fund, you would have done better than banging your head against the walls of trader. What is it that makes trading so difficult? And why do we remember those losses like you just said so and realize them? I think it's a good question. Uh, you know, trading is trading should be boring, but we like this kind of thrill of excitement. And there's this uh, as humans, there's this there's a, a part of our brain that gets super stimulated when we're making money. It's this um, like a dopamine center. So you get really excited about it. So you get this draw to that excitement. But in reality, trading is pretty mechanical and pretty boring. If you're having like crazy fun, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, you're probably in too much risk. Uh, and I think there's so much that goes into trading that, um, that people take for granted. You know, a lot of folks, uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers, they have wildly successful careers and they come out and say, okay, I'm going to retire and I'm going to become a trader. But they forget to become a doctor. It took them 10, 15 years just to get through school. And it's not like you can just turn it on and, and go. Um, I think most people probably could get in the market and buy and hold on to something. Um, that's pretty straightforward to do, but there's this language you got to learn, right? This, we talk in a funny language around order types, market types, market structure. Uh, then you got to figure out how to use the tools. Then you got to figure out what to even put your money in. And then you got to figure out what your risk parameters. So there's just so much complexity. Um, I think that's probably where people get lost in uh, either get stuck down this education path or they get uh, a little bit concerned about losing money. So they, it takes a lot of psychology to become really good. And um, it's just kind of boring when it's, when you're really good at it. <laughs> I, I was just, I was just going to say, you just listed all those things that you need to learn how to do all of which are rendered immediately irrelevant. The second that your stop loss is about to hit or your oh, yeah. take profit is there and you want to remove it. So you could have every rule in the world, but then emotionally change it in the middle, which to me is was the most difficult lesson to learn uh, through all of all of my losses. And, and as I said, sort of banging my head against the wall. So obviously you are a trader, you understand trading and you're building the tools 
that that we that we need to to do so. And for so many years, those tools have been subpar in crypto. You know, I, I can certainly remember the 2016, 2017 going on exchanges that had no stop losses and no no complex orders, and you know you couldn't get in and out of positions. So what are what are you seeing as this market matures as the necessary tools to give like really institutional grade structure to what you're building? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's interesting. You, know, you look at when we first got involved in the space, a lot of the counterparties wanted to trade across Skype with us. How do you offer a service for a large institutional retail audience that trades on Skype? It just isn't going to work. Uh, but kind of fast forward to now, uh, when you look at how TradeStation looks at the world, our, we tend to draw people to us that have a, a good understanding of trading. They want complex orders. They want stop losses, trailing orders. Um, they are used to a world that they would trade in equities and futures. And when they get into crypto, they're like, why is there no bracket? <laughs> what happened yeah. to the stop loss? So those basic fundamental uh, components are essential to be able to allow traders to have the right tools to get in and mix it up in the market. Um, when we look at the space, we, we tend to come at it with all the knowledge we have from our uh, traditional background and look at the crypto and say, okay, all right, I need a good market structure. I need to make sure that we have a healthy liquidity for our customers. I need to make sure that we have good order types. Um, you know, simple things like a trailing stop is important, doing some type of bracket order entries that allow people to have strategies. Um, things that are, are super interesting for us are like cross margining. Uh, we, we find a lot of folks come in where they have, they hold spot, they want to trade futures. Uh, so finding out how we can unlock those capabilities for them. Um, today, what we see is customers have really expanded beyond just the spot market. So if you're a crypto trader, you find that spot's great, but it's limiting. So you want exposure in potentially uh, crypto futures or crypto options. And you might not be so comfortable to go on an international exchange, uh, maybe BitMEX, Deribit, and try those um, synthetic options. Swaps. Yeah, yeah, natural swaps. swaps. Yeah. Uh, but you may be more comfortable with something like a CME futures product. And uh, I think the higher up the food chain you go in terms of sophistication, the more comfortable you are with the CME products and the less comfortable you are with the, um, the swaps that happen overseas. Um, I, I think eventually we'll get there. That infrastructure will be a little bit better, but the you know, it's difficult when the systems are kind of built from scratch and they're new and they have not really been time tested uh, on kind of the margining. But kind of going off on a tangent there, the when we think about the, the markets for us, it's super important to have a, a quality market structure. And it's one of the reasons that we didn't want to become another exchange. We positioned ourselves as a broker. So we will connect to a number of different exchanges. Uh, and that allows us to provide the customer with a picture across multiple markets of a consolidated order book and then interact with all those different markets. So uh, we, we take the headache out of it as much as possible, uh, meaning we're going to show you a consolidated order book of all the markets we're connected to. And when you hit buy, our order router is going to go and break that order up in the most efficient way to get you executed at the best possible prices. Um, that's a super important piece of infrastructure, especially if you come from a traditional markets background and you, you know, when you buy Apple, you don't care where it gets executed. You just want a good fill. Uh, and on the crypto side, if you're used to trading on Coinbase, Kraken, uh, Bitstamp, you have to juggle money all over the place and it becomes yep. a headache and you've got risk everywhere. Uh, so those things are super important. And we saw that as, um, 
like a natural starting point for us and just something that was essential for us to be able to operate as a business, allowing us to have uh, credit lines across a number of different venues, not post collateral and have risk spread across the entire market, but be able to manage that cross exchange settlements so that the customers could just do what they want to do, focus on finding the trade, getting in and out of the market. Um, and then our job again is just stay up and stay operational, provide good liquidity, answer the customers when they call. Um, you know, those things, I think a lot of people take for granted that when you're trading and you're in a rhythm, you kind of find that flow state and any little thing throws you off your game. Like, why did the screen flicker? Uh-oh, why did it not fill what I thought it would be? Now you're off the game and you're trying to call. So we, we try to, as much as possible, be there for the customer and respond. You got a problem, you call us, we'll answer the phone. Uh, we'll try to answer that question as quickly as possible. Uh, we could always do better, but that's, you know, we understand that trader mindset that how easy it is to be thrown off your game. So um, maybe I'm rambling a little bit, but definitely the tools, the market structure and uh, being there for the customers are, are probably the most important things we can do right now. Um, kind of looking down the next part of the one to two years, there's a lot of, uh, pent up interest that we see in the marketplace. Uh, simple things like retirement accounts, that's a, a huge opportunity um, for, for companies to get involved. Today, it's not easy and it's super expensive. I mean, who wants to go and open up a, a futures IRA, set up an LLC, go on an exchange, have a custodial relationship, pay the fees all across the board just so you can hold spot. I mean, today, if you hold, you can hold Apple in your IRA, it's not a problem. So right. we need to get to that place where we can allow uh, retirement accounts to be able to engage in, in spot trading and crypto assets. Uh, we need to get to a place where we can bring in um, other participants like investment advisors. Incidentally, I think that's not, I don't think investment advisors are going to take a ton of exposure on spot. Uh, but once we see the ETF, I would think that that's yeah. going to be really where you get the bang for the buck. Yeah, I was going to add that you're talking about the uh, self-directed IRAs and the IRA challenges. I was mm -hmm. going to bring up, obviously, an ETF, which I think is imminent and I think is this year, to be quite quite mm -hmm. honest. I think that we've matured enough that uh, the arguments against it are somewhat moot. Um, so do you think that that will be the game changer for uh, investment advisors and for people who've been looking for exposure for institutions that really can't touch the trusts and don't want a custody spot. I mean, do you think the ETF is kind of the final boss here? Um, I, I think without a doubt, it's a game changer. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the final boss. We'll probably find some new, some new innovations to bring to the space, but definitely it's going to make it much more accessible. Um, if you look at, even just look across the retail brokers in the US, so we're super US focused, but retail brokers, about 54% of the US population has some exposure to the equity markets through a retail broker. Right. So as soon as you make it accessible, um, for example, an ETF, now you can be listed on any of the big box brokers. So TD, Schwab, Fidelity, yeah. right away, they can turn it on. I mean, TradeStation also. So it just unlocks doors to capital that's been stuck on the sidelines that hasn't maybe been comfortable enough to open a crypto account and engage a spot directly. So it's interesting also, you talked about the fact that you know people come they understand buying and selling spot maybe that becomes a little bit boring or if they are a bit more advanced maybe they're looking for a way to hedge and they really mm -hmm. don't know how to do that right so do you, do you think that uh 
a lot of that comes with the ability to, you know, bet on futures to some degree and, and products sort of more, more focused on, on, on futures and, and obviously some leverage. It's very, I mean, it's very hard. It's still very hard for an American to hedge mm. their spot exposure. Yeah. I mean, it, for the, for us persons, you're really long only at this point. Um, yeah. Once we get ETFs, uh, presumably at some point they'll be shortable. And then you have kind of a, an easy, understandable strategy for a, a U.S. person, right? I, I'm long spot. I can be short the ETF or the, or the stock. Um, this, once you have ETFs, it's very short to be very quickly. You're going to end up with options. And, and uh, those markets tend to be easier for customers to engage with. Uh, equities and options are for retail audiences a little bit easier to grasp than futures. Right. Uh, not often in an equities market, you come in and you're completely upside down futures different risk profile and may end up upside down really quickly. Um, but I think there's a lot of tools that are starting to open up for traders that are beyond just the spot markets. I mean, we have the futures, soon there'll be an ETF, soon there'll be options on those ETFs. Um, and that'll really start to open up doors to new capital, but really interesting ways that we can trade the markets and potentially find better price discovery with uh, the ability to do some shorting on these, these products. Right. And as you said, uh, you were talking about liquidity uh, and the advantages that you have, obviously, as a broker, because you can source liquidity. Mm -hmm. It was recently reported that eToro effectively ran out of Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. They, they, they had to send out an email to millions of people saying, uh, maybe don't put in any buy orders right now. We're not sure we'll be able to fill them on the sell side. <laughs> Awesome, right? First of all, that's awesome because we kind of talk about this myth of a sell-side liquidity crisis that uh, everybody's buying and nobody's selling this time. You obviously solved for that as a broker, but do you think that there really could be supply-side shock in Bitcoin in 2021? I think we see it. Um, you know, we we love all of our trading partners that we we interact with, but they're definitely feeling the crunch. They're definitely feeling the, the exchanges have a little bit of a different perspective than the OTC desks, but the OTC desks are uh, vocally saying it, it's harder and harder to find supply and it's harder yeah. and harder to be able to move those funds around if they need to. Um, so without a doubt, we're seeing crunches on the supply. Um, we have we have a number of different avenues to be able to source so we've fortunately not run into those type of issues but um, if the market keeps going up and larger firms keep coming in and taking crypto out of the market it's going to naturally shrink the supply that we have or that is available for us right i mean right now every metric indicates that that's happening mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we see huge buys on exchanges and outflows instead of yeah. instead of like whales inflow. Um, oh, a, lot of, a lot of cash going to exchange, a lot of crypto coming off exchange. So. Yeah. And you have to imagine that those um, buyers, if they're truly buying it as a hedge or if the narrative is that it's a replacement for cash in the reserve, they're not selling anytime <laughs> soon. Right. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, it would be somewhat embarrassing for them if they did. Also, don't they have to consider short-term versus long-term cap gains to some degree? You have to imagine that if they're buying it now, they're holding it at least a year if they're in the United States just to, yeah. to you know, mitigate the risk of higher taxes. I think that's a, that's a super interesting point. Uh, I, I love trading and I trade as much as I can, but I'm in a funky spot now. Uh, my cost basis sits somewhere around 8,000. The moment I just trade or try to scalp something, I'm out 30%, 35% on cap gains without even making any money on the trade. So it's a, it's a really interesting spot. Um, I'm 
I'm definitely of the longer term view that uh, right now the market's going up and I can't do better than just sitting on it. Uh, I think there's probably people that are much smarter than me that can take advantage of this, but it's just going one direction. I'm just trying to ride the tide. <laughs> My man, I, I couldn't agree more and I preach it and I'm getting yelled at. I've been saying to people, I just can't really trade right now because A, all of our portfolios have grown so much on the investment side. If you have a well-balanced portfolio, obviously you should be holding spot as a majority of your portfolio, no matter how God tier of a trader you think you are, right? Mm -hmm. So for me now to like scale up to the percentages that I would be comfortable with to make it meaningful and to, as you said, avoid that tax risk, I'd be trading with size much greater than I'm comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, dude, you want to trade one Bitcoin, you're throwing a $40,000 position in and out of the market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a very weird situation, but it's like you said, and I pointed out to someone recently, this is why I traded. Yeah. So that I don't have to right now. Like, what do we do for the last three years if I have to like degenerate scalp on exchanges when Bitcoin is going up, you know, a few yeah. multiples? I think who's your, well, Raul talks about this as uh, the most boring trade. Like, it really is. There's nothing to do. And it's probably the hardest thing for me as a trader and probably a trading addict is to not push the button. So I was like, I got to find something else to do to, to trade. Typically what I do is I'll have my larger portfolio that's just locked the way out of reach. And then I'll have a couple thousand bucks that I'll feed that addiction with. Um, I'm doing that now on some of the altcoins, but really it's just watching is exciting. <laughs> right. I was just going to, I was just going to ask. So, you know, the Bitcoin trade is very difficult now, but we still have the crazy volatility and mm -hmm. I think, you know, potential upside in the altcoin market. So is that something that you guys service and how do you approach that? We do. We offer, I think we offer, um, we're total of five. So four altcoins at the moment. Uh, we get a lot of, we get traction there. I think we're, we don't have the breadth that some of the other exchanges do. Um, we'd like to offer some more volatile coins, but our, our customer base is really the, I mean, I think it's across the industry. The lion's share happens in Bitcoin. Sure. I mean, it's six, like 70%. So we can offer other assets and there is a, say a, a moderate demand, but the people that we're generally attracting are not, um, so down, so far down the risk curve of the altcoins that they're, they're pretty happy with kind of those the primary top coins. So as, as a trader yourself, I'm curious how you approach your portfolio management. Uh, I touched on mine, obviously. I, I like to generally be around 70% um, hold and don't touch it, which is mm -hmm. primarily Bitcoin with some Ethereum and then uh, fractions of the altcoin positions that I once held that did exceptionally well. And I figure, you know, I keep the good old fashioned moon bag as we like to call it in crypto. But <laughs> how do you manage your portfolio overall as a trader versus an investor? Yeah, so that's a good question. It depends. For me, I, I tend to adjust over time uh, my perspective. At the moment, I'm very much just buying and holding. I'm just sitting on everything. And I think it's probably 95% of what I'm doing is just letting it sit and Great. enjoy the ride up. Um, I've got a small percentage that I experiment with. Um, like my, I've never been a huge fan of paper trading. I like to just get in and start battling. So I, um, I just did a Ethereum staking note. I've read a little bit about it, got excited. So, okay, that looks interesting. I don't plan, I'd like to have some Ethereum exposure. I don't plan to sell it. Uh, let me do one of these ETH2 staking nodes. Um, so that's a part of that play money just to see how that goes. Um, 
but it's interesting because once you're in the game, you really start paying attention to it. I, I thought I knew about staking and ETH ahead of this, but until you actually put capital at risk, that's when you really dig into it. So uh, generally portfolio right now, the lion's share sits, you're holding. Right, let it ride. And then I'm Modelers. experimenting a few things. Um, I like to dabble in some of the altcoins, but it's really, I don't have as much bandwidth to go and really understand what's going on. I try to look at the technicals and they're good, but there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff behind the scenes. I think that I'd rather look at than just the, the chart trading. So the narrative obviously is that 2017 was retail FOMO and speculation and that 2020 was the rise of, you know, institutional investment and FOMO for holding, I guess, instead of FOMO for, for speculating. What are you seeing as far as, um, you know, new customers, what kind of customers, at what velocity are they signing up? Are you seeing that reflected or is there a different narrative, um, you know, based on what you're seeing with traders actually signing up to use the platform? So it's a good question. I mean, I think I look at it like two, if you were involved in 2013, you were just gambling. In 2017, you were really trying to get involved, but you were a super early adopter. We had to do things like show your passport and kind of grind your way through to figure out. Um, and yes, there was definitely retail participation there because it was not large enough for meaningful players to get involved. 2020 is definitely a different um, type of customer that we see. In 2020, you have a lot more B to B to C product players coming in. So a lot of folks forget that that's a huge institution. You know, you bring someone like PayPal to the table with 300 million customers. That is an institution, but they're B to B to C, and they're they're opening the funnel up for a large number of, of folks. So uh, what we see happening is sort of two areas starting to emerge: the type of banking style products like a PayPal, a Venmo that cater to mass market retail. Uh, and the customers that don't really know or care so much about the trading side, but they just want to hold on to this thing and right. have a part of an investment for them. And we're get, we sit on the more investment side of things where we're seeing a flow of customers that are knowledgeable about trading, uh, definitely would like to have exposure. We get a lot of crossover from the traditional business. Now things are exciting. People move over. Um, we, we also are bringing in a lot of people that are just outgrowing their spot exchanges. Uh, in terms of customer growth, it's been incredible. Um, I think the, imagine. yeah, we, beginning of 2020, when all the, the stuff started happening with COVID, we prepared ourselves, we banned on the hatches. We thought this is going to be an absolutely brutal year. Um, and it turned out to be one of the best years we've ever had as a firm. Um, we were very fortunate about this. I, I think, you know, you take a lot of people, you put them at home front of their computer all day long and they with no sports with no sports they're gonna do something and, and so that capital along with the ease of access from the the b to b to c like traceation or square and paypal really opened up a huge funnel of of money to be able to come in and alongside the obvious ones the grayscales that's that's brought a lot more exposure and, and access to a huge audience at least in the u.s um and alongside of it you have then the like the Novogratz, the Sailors, the Paul, Raul Pauls that are all coming in and buying up huge amounts from kind of a, a macro perspective. And they're seeing things that they want this couple of years or maybe throughout their Decades. life. So yeah. it just, it's this perfect storm of activity, which is like ease of access, 
bigger demand because of larger market cap, people stuck at home with no sports. And it just, it fueled this kind of self uh, spiral of activity that just kept growing and growing and growing. And, you know, as the, as the price rockets up from 10,000 to 20,000, it draws the media attention, draws more people in. The market cap is bigger, so you can get larger players. So it's it just continues to grow, which is great. Um, I think it's nice that we had this last what thirty something percent blow off. <laughs> I was good. Yeah, that actually that that was uh, that was what I intended to ask you about as the first question, but then we started about trading and uh, um, <laughs> and everyone went like it's like they've never been through it before. Yeah, like all of a sudden you see everyone talking about. I mean, CNN, crypto's in a bear market, Bitcoin's yeah. in a bear market for 30 seconds, right? I mean, maybe, okay. And then you start seeing, you know, the regular community, the bears come out roaring, talking about 20,000 retests and 10,000 retests and new lows. And I mean, just complete insanity. Why? Isn't, 30, isn't a 30% retest? We saw that like six times in 2017 before mm. hundreds of percent gains each time. I mean, I, it makes for good headlines. I, I, that article <laughs> on CNN, I was quoted in, um, which like- You weirdly, were quoted in that? Yeah, it, it, it weirdly exploded all around the world. Like uh, I got, it was translated in Czech, Indonesia, and it was in Australia. So I had all these people from the world calling me like, I saw you in this article, but it, it makes for good headlines. Um, you know, I think that we see as the run up um, late last year, every bank analyst wanted to come out with a target and they want to have the higher target. They want to make That's the headlines so like it's 400,000, 500,000. It, it's great headlines. Uh, market sells off is in a bear market. Crypto's dead. It's great headlines. Um, it's just noise. I think that, and you've been trading for a long time. It's exciting. It's interesting to look at, but it's noise. You just got to look at the fundamentals and the overall direction of things that are happening. And Right. Price dropping doesn't change anything yeah. from a fundamental perspective, right? And that's what people need to keep in mind. It's not like Grayscale. Well, Grayscale did shut down for a period of time, but like briefly. It's not, not like price they, was down because <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't service enough customers. I mean, that's an opposite problem, right? That's more of the supply side yeah. shock kind of thing. But <laughs> uh, curious, uh, what happens to a Grayscale trust when there's an ETF? Uh, my opinion is the premium roads. Um, I still think that they continue to to grow. Um, there's a they have a great product, or I think they have a great product. It's not a trade station sponsorship, but going in from that private placement to be able to hold those those shares and then move them out to brokerage, uh, pretty unique way to get into this. Um, I still think you carry a premium on this product. Um, the ETF will be interesting to see if the ETF is structured like a grayscale product where there's direct spot exposure or if it's based on futures or not. So that will determine how much that premium erodes. The premium can be absurd, especially on their uh, altcoin products. Uh, I mean, there was a moment there a couple of weeks ago where you could buy, if you were credited, you know, into the Litecoin trust, basically mm. it was either, you know, a six month lockup or a year lockup, but basically you were guaranteed to make money as long as Litecoin dropped anything less than 90% in the last <laughs> next six to months to a year. Mm. So that grayscale trade probably is somewhat contributed to this meteoric rise because it has been the easiest trade in the world. Yeah, right. But it's, I mean, it's guaranteed. Pro it's guaranteed profit unless the entire market blows up. Yeah. And you do a private placement much easier for larger funds to get involved with larger, larger capital. So if they tend to take these down and larger sizes, than maybe just one Bitcoin or yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different product. Awesome profits. 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's really amazing for those who uh, had the foresight and I guess access early, but that also like the supply side, I think I read yesterday that Grayscale is now buying 1.9 times what's being mined. So yeah. it's not even like they're buying all the Bitcoin that's being mined. They're buying basically double the Bitcoin. That's double the Bitcoin. Mined. And yeah, I saw also like the, the likes of PayPal are doing the same. Like it's just, you know, it's a fundamental shift in supply and demand. The demand increased and the supply decreased. And it's this like perfect storm of activity. So buy the dip um, <laughs> when, it, when it goes down 30, 30%. And so as a trader who watches this market and as someone who, um, you know, obviously is building these tools, why do you think we see these 30% drops? Is that miners taking profit? Is it is it, you know, somebody trying to engineer liquidity for a bigger buy? Uh, how do you perceive those moves? Um, so I'd, I'd start with, I believe they're natural parts of the, the move up. Um, in terms of the cause, I, I can only speculate. Um, you know, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the whole idea around Tether and their participation in the, the move up and uh, if that has an impact. Uh, so it, that may be a contributing factor. Um, People do take profits. You know, people take yeah. profits on large sizes, and you know, when you go from eight thousand to forty, you want to take something off the table. And we still have like this core um, whale community that's holding the majority of bitcoins. No matter how much Michael Saylor and yeah. Paul Tudor Jones buy, the the people who are in early and have you know, and they don't move mm -hmm. their coins very much. But miners and those people, they're going to take their profits every every once in a while. I think yeah. that's what it is. As for tether. You know, maybe there was something to it in 2017. Mm -hmm. At this point, I think they've done an exceptional job of sort of, uh, you know, uh, showing that they are backed. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, what's the tether market cap? 24 billion. We're at a trillion dollar market. Yeah, we're a trillion dollar market cap for crypto. So even an explosion of tether, I think there's other options, and I think that um, it would be a it would be a road bump. And I don't think that they've printed enough tether for this move. You know, 2017, yeah. I could see it, but we're not at $40,000-ish because of Tether, in my mind. I don't know what you think, but... Yeah, I, mean, I, I tend to agree. I think if it turns out to be, which I don't believe it is, but if let's, let's just explore the idea that there was something that was incorrect there, they're not going to take out a significant portion of the market cap. I mean, it, it'll be a black eye for the, the space, but I don't... I can't see the argument that it's a systemic risk at this point. Uh, I think there's probably other areas that represent some higher systemic risk than talk about that. Um, you know, the, I think the, the interesting part to think about is we, we look at Bitcoin as a supply constrained asset, which it is at least today, there's only a certain amount of Bitcoin that will be mined, but we forget that derivatives are like four X uh, the Bitcoin market cap. So we're creating these things on top of it uh, as a community that are providing more and more exposure to an underlying asset that's not a whole lot to go around. So uh, those areas are being built with technology that's not really been proven um, yet. It's not like you have NASDAQ and IZ who also struggle on their own issues when things do, go up. Right. Of course. Uh, you have these, these technologies that have been built in the last five years that haven't really had to deal with uh, major blowouts. I mean, the last, uh, I think you guys are talking about this on your podcast with um, with Dan that Bitfinex has been credited to one of the reasons why we had such a huge sell-off in the beginning of the year. 
uh, they unplugged the system and things balanced out. So those are parts of the system that still need to be fully exercised. And we need to figure out how to work through the challenges that are going to happen. Um, there's a lot of leverage being built up with types of settlement activities. There's a lot of leverage being built up with the, the borrow lend trades that are going on. A lot of stuff going on in DeFi that's creating these uh, additional credits and not a great credit monitoring system available. Uh, there's really not a great way to underwrite counterparty risk, uh, which is why a lot of the folks are doing these over collateralized loans, which I think is probably the smartest way to do the, the lend borrow trade if you're going to do it. But I, I'm a little scared about the people that are just lending and getting no collateral back because eventually when the music stops, there's only a limited amount of chairs and we're getting a larger and larger circle of um, participants that are dependent on this limited supply. Hmm. Fractional reserve bank. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the, that's the question. When there's, a, when there's a bank run and the bank isn't holding it, what happens? Right. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that that's inevitable, but it is interesting that you talk about, um, you know, we always talk about, obviously you and I have talked about it multiple times already, the supply side and deflationary mm. asset and 21 million Bitcoin and 5 million are lost. And it's even, but the more products you build on top of it, the more like theoretical supply there becomes, right? Yes. If there's a way to trade it without exposure to the spot, that supply becomes less relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right? I yeah. think that's that's dead on. And it there's right now, there's a ton of interest in the raw supply, the underlying spot supply, or at least perceived. You know, if you, you're on PayPal, uh, you buy Bitcoin, you hold it, you can't take it out, but you still have <laughs> some, I mean, yeah. In theory, and, and I have a reason to believe that you own the Bitcoin that's there. Um, but when you start to get into the derivative side, even the, the CME futures product, it's all cash settled. It's, it's cash settled, a, right. Online yeah. delivery. Um, so it does become less important. And, and it, the derivative instruments are a, ne a necessary part of the ecosystem. They're going to be the ways that we draw in much larger capital. Uh, I mean, it's also what makes the market efficient, right? Yeah. I mean, setting it, setting a futures price is, is how you don't start talking about $1.5 million in Bitcoin <laughs> in six months. So it is, I mean, it's a necessary, it's a necessary part of the, part of the ecosystem. But, yeah. um, and I think when it comes to owning spot, there's this sort of evolution. First you buy on PayPal, mm. right? And you just want to have some Bitcoin and then you dig into it a little more and you're like, I'm going to buy in a real exchange where I can send the coin or I'm going to hold it on an exchange. And then you get your first hardware wallet, it freaks you out because yeah. you don't really know what you're doing and you can lose it. And then all of a sudden you become like a crazy person like me and you go to like full multi-sig <laughs> stuff is spread out around the world and even you can't access your own Bitcoin, yeah. you know? But I think you're right that that's not important to most people. Mm -hmm. And probably to the people that's important to, we already have our exposure. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, um, it's funny that story you just told, it's very quick how it happens too. You, you kind of outgrow very fast and um, you become the the crazy guy in the corner all of a sudden where you're like, yeah, I got Bitcoin. I'm, like I'm hoarding gold in my own, in my own yeah. wallet. Uh, and I think that over time, uh, the hardware wallets are gonna become less and less uh, common. I think people probably like you and I that are original in here that are like, we're gonna hold our own stuff, but it's just gonna be easier to work with inside of a, a usable system. Well, exchanges have become 
far better. I mean, you know, yeah. we all kind of went down that path and I still believe in it. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Security, I think is huge. And if you've ever been SIM swapped or hacked as I have multiple times, okay. <laughs> you, you get a taste <laughs> for it, but exchanges do such a better job now yeah. of protecting your coins, you know, like uh, better two-factor authorization, multiple mm-hmm. steps to go through. If you've got a, you know, 2FA on your email and you've got 2FA on your account and you need a separate mm-hmm. device, to, it's, you know, or whitelist your, your, uh, uh, address to get the coins off. I think that they're doing a better job. So I agree that as they improve, that's where the buck will stop for mm-hmm. 90% of people. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people, they don't, I think they don't want to know about sort of the risk. I mean, they don't want to know about, we, we live in a similar risk with cash in your bank account. You just don't want to know. Uh, but it's I mean, not, per- you don't perceive it, right? Yeah. Because you don't that's been the way that that's where you put your money. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily right or wrong. I think we're going down that path because we see it coming and we, we do the best job we can to make sure that everything is buttoned up and battened down. Um, I think a lot has changed in three years in terms of knowledge and awareness and kind of understanding of how uh, to deal with these assets and, and put them in more secure. Uh, but I think generally the people in general that are engaging, we have a horrible, uh, we're notoriously horrible at assessing risk. Uh, and I think uh, I was listening to one of the Winklevoss twins talking about somebody riding a bicycle with no helmet and a mask on. Like, yeah, you're not going to get COVID, but you're going to still crack your head if you fall. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, it's a great, that's a great point. So I'm curious, you said that 2020 has been one of the best years for you guys mm-hmm. ever. I had a very similar experience in March. I was like, yeah, everything's ending. It's over. Like how was anybody you can make money and then just had this massive year, you know, and looking back, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So on your non-crypto side mm-hmm. of the business, did you also see that sort of meteoric rise in interest in trading and signups because of the Davy day trader and, you know, all these people basically I'm asking like, was the fact that people were at home and didn't have sports to gamble on stuff, did that only translate in crypto or did you see the stock side absolutely explode as well because people got more interested? Yeah, stock side. It started for us on the stock side. I mean, I think if you go back to the beginning of the year, crypto was exciting, but the stock market was much more exciting. It, it was much more exciting through the summer. Um, and because we offer all those asset classes, we have an interesting vantage point to watch as customers move across the asset classes. Um, we saw a lot of folks... Tesla was a huge story. We see a lot of activity in, the, in that stock. And those similar folks, we also see them flip over and start Crypto. trading Bitcoin when it's, yeah. when it's, when it's yeah. come up. Um, but we did, yeah, definitely the, the securities business uh, was a, got a lot of renewed interest. We saw a large inflow of new customers, large reactivation of existing customers, um, and then a lot more activity from the folks that, that we uh, already had. I think a lot of this, though, if you think back to 2008, when everyone got just wiped out, uh, a lot of folks still remember that and they remember that opportunity that emerged. I mean, if you bought Home Depot 2008, you'd probably be retired right now. Yeah. <laughs> it was $4 at one point. I, I think that's, that's incredible. So there was a lot of opportunity, um, a lot of people with nothing to do. And it just, folks saw that as a place to come in and really engage in the space. Yeah, a lot of people saw the baby thrown out with the bathwater, you know, mm-hmm. as they say, which is that why is a fundamentally good company also dropping 30, yeah. 40% that, you know, if their business hasn't changed at all? I mean, there were dips on Amazon that were yeah. kind of the most obvious buys. <laughs> 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 um, and I remember arguing with my friends when it dipped to like 17 or 1800, like, oh, but China is going to not 
have supply and they won't be able to ship wrong. Yeah, Amazon. <laughs> so it, it's just funny to look back at the narratives in your head when everything's down and, and bad and how obvious it is in retrospect that it was yeah. going to be the easiest trade in the but world. It dropped and came back very quick, oh, which drew a lot of excitement. And, you know, if you're sitting on the sidelines and you're, you're talking to your friends, you got nothing else to do and they're making money in stocks and you hear about the Robin Hood rally and uh, there was no late time to get in. I mean, you could have started still. in. <laughs> it still, still it feels that way, right? Fine, yeah. It's not like they're uh, going to stop printing money. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. The, you know, the, what do we printed 25% of all the dollars in circulation last year? Yeah. That's an incredible number. <laughs> mm, but what, how, how does that end? Um, I don't see a, an easy near-term solution. I think... Um, globally, in order to keep the economy moving, uh, there's got to be a lot more stimulus coming. Uh, I, I just don't see it. I mean, these, Europe is on almost total lockdown. They're going to have to bring their economy back to life somehow. Um, the US is printing like crazy. Uh, we're trying to keep things, keep things moving. Uh, I think you've got to get some uh, government lawmaker consensus on a solution, more of a longer term. And I don't think that regardless where your politics lie, neither, I, I don't see any politician um, that's going to be willing to tighten up the belt bootstraps and, you know, who's, it's a free money train. We're, we're paying people money. People are liking it. Um, no one's going to want to have that uncomfortable conversation about how are we going to deal with this deficit that we're creating in this debt. Um, and we're, we're kind of on a collision course, you know, later 20, later 2020 will be very interesting as we have to figure out all the baby boomers are now shifting into retirement. Uh, we have to figure out how we're going to cover those obligations and there's not easy solutions. And uh, right now we don't have the, the political will in the U.S. To, to really face those conversations. And I don't think even as a population, we're ready to kind of compromise and figure out the, how we do this together. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, money printing has no party anymore, right? And there's no, and neither party can make the argument of fiscal conservatism or yeah. any any sort of uh, responsibility over budgets. But if you're you and you're running Trade Station, numbers go up, right? If they keep printing, stocks go up. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it's great when you see. For us, it's asset inflation. We're kind of we're seeing all the assets. A crypto goes up, equities go up. Um, eventually, there will be more corrections, but sure. the more you pump money into the system, the more it's going to cause the assets to increase. Now, uh, it doesn't seem like a lot of that. Well, it seems like a lot of the cash that's been printed has been absorbed by the banks, and we got to figure out how to get that out of the banks and into sure. the, uh, the populations. And if nobody takes a loan, the money isn't really printed, right? Yeah, and, and I think people want loans. Uh, I'm not sure that they're able to get loans yet. I think the, the banking sector is still scarred from 2008 and we haven't yet given them the free reign. You know, you've got a bunch of capital, go make loans. Um, we need to make it okay for them to unlock that capital. Uh, maybe that comes to I me, mean, that does start to go down that idea that there's potentially going to be negative interest rates. Um, who knows that's going to happen? I, you know, bunch of money being printed, locked in the banking system, needs to get to the people. We don't have a great way to get it to the people. Uh, I don't think that we are in a place in the U.S. that we're just going to jump onto some type of central bank stable coin and send it to people directly. Um, I think not yet, hopefully soon, but 
you know, there's um, it's coming. It's coming for sure, but I think we're not there yet. I, I don't see it happening in the next year. Two, no, maybe. I don't. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think we see central. Well, in China, we'll see. You know, they're already yeah. testing central bank digital currencies, but the United States isn't really compelled to. I don't think yeah. do that immediately. So speaking of the United States, you're one of the few companies that is attempting to run a crypto trading uh, business in the United States with all the crazy regulation that we have here and stuff. You guys are based in Miami. I've had a lot of exchange CEOs on the show and have a lot of them that are friends. And most of them blindly say, we don't touch the United States. We can't do it. (laughs) Don't even try it. Like the regulatory hurdles are too great. The risk is too high. So what is that like for you guys operating in the United States with a primarily United States customer base? We like punishment. I think that's part of the reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think in, in all, all reality, we uh, TradeStation as a brand has operated a, a regulated broker dealer for many years. Uh, we're used to kind of the we're used to having to go through the hoops and hurdles and regulation. Um, I think we believe it's really a necessary uh, necessary function uh, to be able to kind of provide some clarity for the crypto markets. Uh, it is definitely, it's not been easy to operate in the U.S. When, when we started, there really wasn't a clear path. A lot of the things we had to deal with, I mean, it, for us, setting up a trading business, we've done it for many asset classes, and it's, like, it's, it's straightforward for us. But when we got into crypto, it seemed like everything looked familiar, but along every step of the way, you just hit a different hurdle and challenge. Um, you, we have you know, all the big consulting firms, Deloitte, uh, KPMG, yeah, within themselves, when you ask them for advice, they're arguing amongst themselves. You know, simple one, how do you solve tax? What's our obligation for tax reports? Well, IRS hasn't published any guidance yet. Uh, they, they, there's a blog post, which is being cited all over the place. Oh my God, uh, that blog post, which it, change, it, magically yeah. changes like one word at a time. Yeah, and, and so then you go to like, one of the, the auditors, the consultant, you go to Deloitte and you get them on the phone and they're supposed to kind of give you some clarity or even some cover on the decision you make, but then they can't agree. Then you engage the outside, you, you engage the outside counsel that are experts in the space and they change their mind every other day. Uh, as I mean, the space is moving, but so you get some guidance and you start to run with it. Then the next week you find out that uh, the opinion has changed. So I think that was probably the hardest part for us was not really having a clear roadmap to execute this. Uh, I think fortunately we had a good construct coming from the regulated side of, you know, no matter where the rules are or don't exist now, if we apply this similar type of framework for how we approach the space, uh, eventually the rules will fall in place and we'll be able to adapt to whatever rules come out. Um, Although while most of the exchanges you, you mentioned are not here in the US today. Uh, I believe that Coinbase, like bajillion IPO and backed is gonna change the yeah. perception. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree, I agree. I, I think maybe it's more for, you know, a lot of people I'm talking about are leverage products and yeah. they're trying to offer altcoins and you see the path that Ripple's going down and, mm-hmm. you know, making sure, I'm assuming that's why you guys list for, you know, five things and don't touch 500, it, right? It, it, yeah, it helps, I, mean, I think. We started with a narrow subset that we felt comfortable with. Uh, we will eventually expand that, but it's um, it's super important for us. 
for us, we have brand reputation across all the asset classes. Right. If we for blow up crypto or make a misstep on crypto, it damages the core business. So we, our decisions come from a different place and, and we are not uh, the most aggressive and the most out there in the forefront, but uh, we tend to kind of take this slow, steady path. Um, now, when you compare us against some of the other brokers, we're kind of way out in front of most of the other brokers in terms of our view on crypto and making it accessible. Uh, but we're still, I think, fairly slow compared to a lot of the more nimble crypto startups. Um, a lot of that is we we have teams of teams of lawyers, compliance people, there's a lot of discussion. And it's not like you can point to a rule and say, hey, that's the way. It's how do you get to the best understanding and make the most educated decision? Uh, that, that's probably been the trickiest for us. Yeah, I had Sam Bankman freed on not long ago, the CEO of FTX. And uh, we were talking about that. And I kind of joked they probably had more lawyers than uh, employees. And he said, yeah, and every single one of them gives you a different opinion and actually makes everything harder, just like yeah. you sort of said. And he, I guess his take, which was a great quote, I think he said, you know, I'd rather stay up late than lose sleep. Um, basically do the work <laughs> and give the best faith effort, you know, in advance and then hope for the best. But it sounds like that's all you can do if you don't have clarity, right? Yeah. You just comply as much as you possibly can and hope mm. that they respect that effort and don't come after you for some loophole that didn't even exist at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think we, you you prepare yourself. Um, you don't take unnecessary risks and uh, operate under frameworks that you can defend. And, and those are really the kind of the best ways to move about right. it. And um, a lot of our like uh, industry knowledge and kind of intellectual capital of the firm comes from that securities broker dealer side. So when you start looking at problems, that's sort of the first place they go, okay, well, that's the natural uh, direction of the regulation. Where do we sit today? Okay, well, let's not veer too far from where we think this is ultimately going to end up. Makes sense. Uh, as I touched on before, you're in Miami and Miami is all over the press right now for crypto, right? Suarez is uh, kind of saying that he wants it to be the fintech, fintech capital mm. of the United States. No state taxes in Florida, so it's not like hedge funds and wealthy people haven't been looking to Florida in the past. I know my friend Benjamin Minku, who is the CEO of Elrond, flew in from Romania to meet, meet with him. And uh, my friend Witt, who runs a miner in Eastern Europe as well, talked to him. The Winklevire down there. What mm. are you seeing on the ground? And is it really exciting for you? I mean, do you think that this is happening down there? So I was a Miami resident for like five years. I just left not long ago, and it makes me kind of want to go back. Yeah, it's... Um... Without a doubt, it's uh, 2020 opened up a lot of possibilities for folks when you don't have to be in an office, you can be anywhere. And then you start to see your checks come in and there's still 30, 40% taxes. And you start looking at it's sunny in Miami and um, we're, all, I moved there. We're, we're talking about, hey, it's beautiful and go to the beach. And um, you have a, a mayor, uh, Suarez has been really good about this. He's been focused around a financial initiative. I think he calls it Wall Street South. Probably for the last two, three years, they're they're building up a financial hub in Miami. Uh, I don't, not many people know this. Miami is the second largest banking center in the U.S. It's uh, yeah, because it's a servicing South America. I mean, it's yeah. it is the you know it's the point of entry to the United States for all of South America. Yeah, and so, and so it's, a, it's a great spot, and we've. Trade Asia has been down here for many years and it's been difficult to find talent, a lot of like finance financial services talent. We get, there's a ton of talent, but it's not necessarily what we need on the finance side and it's becoming easier. Uh, a lot of times we import folks 
that are more than willing to move here. Uh, but the stuff that Suarez is doing is really becoming a champion for Miami. And I think he's done a great job of positioning, uh, at least around the headlines of, you know, engaging with the community like the Winklevoss, Pomp, um, variety of other people that will draw the attention and more um, awareness of Miami. I think Goldman Sachs is talking about setting up here, yep. JP Morgan, um, who is it, the Paul Singer. There's a variety of other folks that are already down here that are growing their footprint. And uh, Suarez is making it attractive. You know, he's making them good offers and we've got phenomenal universities. I mean, University of Miami is what, 15 minutes from downtown. So there's, yeah. it's a great university, you can pull talent here. You can't beat the weather. Uh, and it's, it's great. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's what led me there. Yeah. Uh, I woke up one morning in, in New York City and it was cold and dingy, dark outside. And my wife and I said, you know, our rent here is double what a mortgage for like a penthouse apartment in, in Miami would be. What are we doing here? Yeah. I'd move. And, and, you know, it's funny though, when we were in Miami at the time, the joke was um, that nobody in Miami had a job at all. Like mm -hmm. everyone you meet, you can't tell you what they do and they're just sort of on permanent vacation. So it seems yeah. that there's a change in that ethos down there yeah. a bit that people are actually coming down there to do things other than sit on the beach. We, we see, I mean, a number of our trading partners are either located down here now or are planning to locate down here. Um, another firm that's pretty interesting is Myax, the Miami Exchange. Uh, they are, they're right down the road. They've been a financial kind of center here. So uh, it's just growing and the, the level of talent that we're starting to get in the area, it, it's expanding beyond just sales for banking, which is nice to see that that's right. like super interesting. And, um, there's lots to offer. Uh, it's been, it's been interesting to watch. I mean, even just the housing prices have blasted up. I, I had a, you're mentioning about the apartment, a buddy of mine moved down and they took a one bedroom for $4,500. I'm like, you're out of your mind. He said, well, I paid, I paid seven in New York. <laughs> he's, he thinks he's saved and he's on the beach. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah, Miami's finally going again. It was the best financial decision I ever made was buying yeah. a condo in Miami in like 2011, mm. 2012. You know, yeah. I mean, it was free money, luckily. <laughs> uh, and I, then, I but the people who bought it, as you talk, we talk about the fear in 2008. I mean, the people who had the foresight to buy in Miami or anywhere, mm. but specifically in Miami, maybe Las Vegas, but really Miami mm. made incalculable oh, it's, it's buying it's anything. Yeah, I, I, I look outside, I counted in the last year, 16 new buildings going up around me. We're talking massive buildings. There's one that's around 8,000 people just across the road from us. So the, the capacity is here. Um, interesting, when we just did the, when we did the early lockdown, the entire place was empty because yeah. most people don't live here. So there's so That's much. That's right. It's everyone's capacity. second home. That's what, yeah. And it's starting to shift. And we starting to see many more people that are here more full time instead of just that uh, Thanksgiving to Easter. Some people that are here working, here trying to, to make money and, and grow. And you know, I'd argue there's not very many places in the world that's tropical and you can make good living. Miami is one of them. It certainly is. So, um, you know, I, I know we're getting up against it here with time. I'm curious, the broader vision for 2021 and beyond, uh, what do you think will happen in the crypto market? And then obviously, what are your plans, you know, personally and, and at TradeStation? Broadly crypto, I think um, we continue to see an enormous amount of interest in Bitcoin. Um, some of the price forecasts are crazy, but 
I don't think they're that crazy. Uh, I don't either. It's, it's, if you consider it as multiples, I mean, yeah. you know, to three X you're in the, in the six figures now. And we just did that. Yeah. So I think that 2020 becomes a great, a great year. Bitcoin has a lot of detention now. Um, I suspect sometime um, shortly Ethereum will take over on some of that interest and has potentially higher multiples, but um, I, you know, we'll see if that, if that plays out. Um, overall, the, the amount of access to the crypto markets will continue to grow and it'll continue to draw more interest in the space. Um, it, for sure in the US, more B2B to C players are coming in, more opportunities for customers are coming in. Uh, the ability for customers to use this as part of their investment portfolio is, is expanding. Uh, we also see a lot of stuff happening around interest bearing accounts. Uh, so people can hold crypto assets and earn interest. And Huge. Um, we have something that we're doing, or we actually offer that now. Uh, it, it, incidentally, it's the number one reason people leave brokerages is to find higher interest. And so yeah, yield. yield. So crypto is kind of put us in a place where we can offer that to the customers. So that's a, a huge area of growth for us. Um, I think the, the new administration that comes in, will be interesting to see how they respond to the, the different rules that are being proposed right now. Um, I don't think what we're seeing right now and hearing from our folks is it doesn't seem that it's going to be detrimental. Um, I think overall, I mean, crypto folks, we're always going to complain when new rules come in, but it's happening. They're going to happen. Um, yeah, they're, they're going to happen, but you hope that it's <laughs> smart regulation and not yeah. dumb regulation. I yeah. would say that the inability to basically send funds to or from an on-ramp, off-ramp from any private custodial wallet would be pretty damaging. That would be pretty stupid, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and makes no sense. But, you know, that's obviously on the table. But like you yeah. said, and we just saw Gary Gensler was hired, you know, at the, or likely will be the head of the SEC. And this guy's teaching blockchain at, at Cornell, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, yeah, you're right. It, it's the interest is there. I think we're in a space now where there's enough people participating that it's going to be hard to take it away, like extremely hard to take it away. Um, I think they'll find ways to make it more accessible, but also more controlled. Um, I think that you're going to see a lot of push around these China central bank coins. Um, the, if you just read some of the interesting articles coming out, like South China sees um, the South China times where they're discussing around how this, this new Chinese token is going to work. Um, and how it's an alternative for the dollar, the sort of the rhetoric and the the perception is really interesting as this being positioned against the anti-dollar. So I think that you're going to see more Western countries have a response, uh, or at least becoming much more vocal. Whether we get our act together and do something sooner than later, that'll be that remains to be seen. Um, we're still we still see kind of over time, probably in the next two to three years, that these two entities, like at the spot markets and the securities market become much more fused together and um, not so different as they are today. Uh, if you can look like Coinbase, Kraken, those guys are all driving towards getting their broker dealers up. They want to have other asset classes in there. And it's like, yeah. they're, yeah. they're expanding. Kraken's a bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you're going to see more retail brokers participate. I think you're going to see now that Ameritrade and Schwab, they're working through their integration. Um, they'll start to focus on this asset class. There's just so much excitement that they're going to have to get in the game somehow, um, whether it's through spot or through otherwise. I think Fidelity continues to really grow their 
institutional space. Um, maybe they make it open up for the larger audience, but I think it they're they're really trying to carve out themselves as that the place to be for institutions, and, and um, I think they they continue down that path. Um, for us, for Trace Station, we are we've got a lot of good plans in place. Uh, we definitely are are looking towards opening up access to more account types, things like. Um, retirement accounts, things, uh, things that are going to make it much easier for the people to interact with, um, interact with crypto, make it just a natural part of their overall portfolio. Um, not a thing you do on the side, something that's right. kind of much more together. Um, yeah. you know, we're, we're seeing now a lot more good, reliable sources of information. I mean, your podcast is awesome. I, I've been listening to it for a while and Thank it's, you. it's, it's not just crazy guys that are like fanatical about the um, the religion of Bitcoin and crypto. It's actually people that are coming in with finance backgrounds that have an understanding and can talk more directly to the to the people at large. I mean, I, I like the nuts and bolts of blockchain, but most people just want to know: Is it safe? Can I use it? Is it going to work for me? Yeah, I I, I agree. So the forecast for twenty twenty one is that there's going to be a lot more building, a lot more interest, and mm. likely will contribute to a lot more price appreciation, yeah. regardless of what those ludicrous targets are or are not. Yeah, I think explosive on price. Uh, and then sometime in the next two years, we'll actually get back to doing like real building again. <laughs> uh, I'll be doing nothing in two years. If this continues. <laughs> you can build. I'll yeah. be uh, I'll be the guy in Miami that I was just criticizing, the yeah, one well, who we'll, buys and, and goes sits on the beach and does nothing. We'll have margaritas down at uh, one of the beach bars. Uh, I, I, I'm absolutely ready. So where can everybody uh, follow you after this? Keep up with what you guys are doing and, and you personally. Yeah, so check us out. Uh, it's www.tradestation.com. Uh, you'll see all the the offerings we have. There's a bunch of different um, education pieces. If you're just looking to get started, you can get involved and open up an account uh, if you if you like, um, but you'll just see the different things we do uh, and see if it fits for what your, your needs are. Uh, you can follow me on, uh, on Twitter. I'm at James R. Putra. Um, love to engage and talk more with the community and like super, super thankful that you let me on the show and hopefully uh, this was at least entertaining and useful for the audience. I think it's, I think <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, you don't often get to talk to someone who has a long um, history in trading and then is on the other side, actually completely in tune with the market, you know, and, and what people need to, to, to make that happen. So you kind of have both perspectives, it's really valuable. And, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for taking the time. Awesome. Thanks again, Scott. All right, James. Let's do it.